0: It was February and a very eager pastor from a small town in North Carolina jumped into his study chair. He was feeling the buzz of the church staff meeting. It was, after all, just a few weeks until Good Friday and so he plotted with purpose and he he planned with precision and then he posted his proposal on his blog to spur on his fellow pastors. He wrote this, Easter, is one of the most popular times in the year for guests to attend your church. And that can cause a lot of pressure as you're planning to make your day special. How are you going to welcome the large crowd? How will you greet newcomers? What memorable moments are you going to send people away talking about? Here's 10 things that we've done at our church that were big hits, even adding just one or two of them to your Easter service could make a major impact. Number one, host a family photo booth. This is one of my favorite things to do at big events, he said, people love it, have a professional photographer in place and a volunteer to take a photo on a guest phone. Number two, have a signable wall. We got a local printer to hook us up with a huge display where people could sign who Jesus is to them. Three, share life-changing stories. One of the best ways to show your audience that change is possible in their situation is to get people to share their stories. Four, give your media a fresh look. Easter is the perfect time to change up all the visuals on your screen. Have you checked out the new motion backgrounds from CMG? Five, mix up your music. On big days at our church, we always like to do something special. We once mixed in an instrumental from Justin Bieber's Where Are You Now to Young and Freeze Alive. Anything that you can do to add that element of surprise works great to create a special moment. Number six, build a new stage design. A new stage is one of the most noticeable changes that you can make to your environment. Number seven, provide fun and tasty treats. I love surprising our church with fun foods. In addition to the coffee, we've had lemonade, Coke, donut holes, popcorn, and chocolate-covered pretzels. Eight, take a Sunday selfie with your crowd. Do a giant selfie from the stage during one of your services. Our people had loads of fun with it. We posted it on Facebook so that everyone could tag themselves. nine, fun giveaways. It can bring a lot of excitement to giveaway items. T-shirts, sunglasses, wristbands, and water bottles are all a solid investment in making a special moment. And finally, 10, turn up the fun for the kids. Last Easter, we pulled out all the stops. We purchased a $230 adult deluxe bunny costume with mascot head. We then rented moon bouncers and even had face painting. It was a great experience that made both the kids and all the parents happy. Friends, honestly, don't begin with that blog post in order that we may scoff at another church. And I certainly do not read it out in order that we might have our pride inflated for far more than than any Easter bunny suit or any blow-up moon bounce. It is inflated pride that stands against Jesus' resurrection and death more than anything else. Moreover, if we read the blog post with kindness, we may conclude here was a pastor who was just eager for Easter. Here was a pastor with, with an energetic evangelistic ethos. And yet if we picture in our minds perfectly smiling families in photo booths and entertaining motion backgrounds on PowerPoint and fun Justin Bieber resurrection mix-ups and people waving for the in-service selfie and free T-shirts and sunglasses eating chocolate-covered pretzels and everybody happy. If we picture all that, and all the eagerness that went into making that 21st century North Carolina service, and we standardize that ethos, and make it a normal picture of Christian outreach, then I would propose that this morning we will find what happens in Acts 17, in a first century Northern Greek service, as a very strange read indeed. For verse 1 again, and do look down with me. what, what do you think evangelism at church looks like? What, what do you expect your, your pastors to, to be laying on for guests, for your unbelieving eh, neighbors and, and friends? What do you hope that our church will do uh, as Christmas looms in, in, in a few months' time, when we finally get a COVID-free Easter? Or, or to make it more personal, if you say that you love and follow the Lord Jesus and so seek the lost as he did, what is your plan? What is the customary way that you believe that people will come to Christ? And do we get any clues here? Well, if you've been away for a church for a few weeks, let me remind you that we're in the middle of uh, Paul's second missionary journey here in Acts. But if you've never really been to church, let me tell you that you're most welcome here. But let me also explain to you that, that Paul, our main character here in our passage today, was a deeply religious man who used to murder Christians. Indeed, a few weeks ago, in this historical account, we saw Paul approving to the stoning of a Christian man named Stephen. And yet, just one chapter later, in Acts chapter 9, that this man, Paul, does a complete 180. For Paul stops killing the church and instead joins it. For Paul came to see what every Christian at some point in their life comes to see, that Jesus really was God. And that religious effort was not good enough for a God who hates all selfishness, and that even deeply moral people must repent of a life of autonomy and must turn to trust in Christ, the Son of God, who died that death that we all deserve, and to wonderfully, to wonderfully make it possible that we might be right with a just and a holy God. And so Paul became a Christian. And in obedience to his precious Savior, Paul, Paul ran with that good news that he had come to believe. In Acts 13 and 14, on his first missionary journey, he ran to Cyprus and then to Turkey. And then after a quick drinks break in, in Acts 15, on his second missionary journey here, he runs back to Turkey before heading to modern-day Greece. And so in verse 1, Of this chapter, we observe Paul jogging along the Mediterranean coastline until he comes to his next major city, the ancient Greek trade port of Thessalonica. And again, when Paul gets there, what is his evangelistic strategy? What is Paul eager to do as he sees the potential of another crowd? With Easter evidently in his mind here, what is this evangelist's ethos? Well, verse 2 tells us, doesn't it? Indeed, the original Greek employs that very word, the word ethos. One of the few ancient Greek words that we still use today it is right there in verse 2. For verse 2 reads, as was his custom, literally as was Paul's ethos, his pattern, his, his habit, his practice, he went in and explained the scriptures. And so point one this morning, The ethos of evangelism, with eagerness, God's word is explained. Yes, there are a lot of E's in there this morning, but you are always so very patient with my love of alliteration. So point one again, the ethos of evangelism, with eagerness, God's word is explained. Evidently, Paul just has 21 days to see some results His stay in Thessalonica, verse 2, amounts to just three Sabbath days. Time was short, as short as it was for that North Carolina pastor. But 21 days would surely give Paul enough time to hire the professional photographer, to build a new stage design in the city perhaps, to buy some some sunglasses for his Mediterranean crowd. At the very least, perhaps enough time to bake some chocolate-covered pretzels. But Paul does none of this. Instead, Luke is very keen to point out to us that he just does what he customarily does. He just walks in and he opens the Bible. He pitches up, no doubt looking like a total mess, having just walked 94 miles straight from Philippi, where we last saw that he was attacked by a mob and beaten with rods and then imprisoned during an earthquake, and yet not caring. About his tattered clothes and his bruised face. Or whether these people are ready to hear him or not, he simply blows the earthquake dust off his Bible and he eagerly opens it up to them. And yet he doesn't just open it up casually, does he? As if the scriptures themselves are some kind of magic, kind of special box of tricks. No, Paul works with a passion. For as normally, he has to reason with his audience, verse two. He has to explain, verse three. He has to prove, verse three, that Jesus had to suffer our punishment and that Jesus had to rise for our eternal life. He has to persuade, did you see that, verse four, using the truth of God's word. We note that he doesn't start firing T-shirt cannons in the synagogue, but nor does he just shout out John three sixteen in the streets. No, he sits down with people and with an eagerness, he works as, as hard as he can to, to explain the Bible as simply and as clearly and as engagingly as he can. His methodology is not magic, nor is it particularly moving. But as Luke says, it is simply what he does. For the memorable moment that he wants his guests to come away with, talking about, is the fact that God speaks. And hence his proclamation, verse 3, from God's word, is that Jesus is the Christ. And so what happens? Does every child and and every parent leave happy, grinning through the face paint and swinging their new Yeti water bottle? No, I'm not sure if anyone leaves this Easter-focused evangelistic service happy. But wonderfully, verse 4, some leave persuaded. Some are convicted. And convinced, and so they join Paul and Silas, like Paul. Some leave their their old religious allegiances behind, and some come to see through their studies that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is savior and that he is king, that Jesus died for our iniquity, that Jesus rose for our eternity. And so some are saved and wonderfully brought into God's church. Friends, listen, in an experienced hungry generation, at a time when we're understandably nervous about offending people with ultimate truth claims, and in a desperate and often godly desire to see more people in a church building, it can be very easy for us to place our confidence, and so our eagerness and our energy into something other than God's word and the simple explanation of it. And I understand that. I understand that particularly as a church leader. I feel that acutely. It can sometimes seem more socially reasonable to take selfies of your Easter congregation than to, than to reason with them about the resurrection. It can sound a better idea in 2021 to have a giant wall where, where people get to write who Jesus is to them rather than have people to listen to who Jesus is. Indeed, let me confess that most weeks it feels far less work to to, to bake pretzels than than to labor over another exposition from God's word. For what person chooses persuasion over pretzels or reasoning over rock music or explanation over entertainment or, or proving the truth about who Jesus was over having your own truth about who Jesus is? And no doubt for many of us, as we think about this personally and practically, no doubt for many of us, it sounds an arduous task to shut the bedroom door and to work hard to understand God's word, that we might regularly set up a coffee with a friend to show them who Jesus was from God's word. And moreover, I do want to concede the uniqueness here of this passage. For Paul was uniquely called by God to, to evangelize southern Europe in, in, in a way that we are not And yet Paul's evangelistic ethos is to be ours. As a church together, and also as individuals, for as we have seen again and again and again in Acts, conversion comes by explaining God's truth. People are born again by the Spirit and by the Word, the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of the Bible publicly preached holy spirit setting souls ablaze as the cross and resurrection of christ are deeply taught just like on the road to emmaus and friends if you are a christian that is your job now there's a sense in which it is it is principally mine and 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 matt's for that is literally our job We, we are paid to do that and there's a sense in which it falls to the other elders, too, as those who are recognized as able to teach, 2 Timothy 2, too. But my fellow brothers and sisters, it is also your job. For, a friend, through God's promised word, he has commissioned us to be his mouthpieces, to explain God's word and to explain with an eagerness wherever you are and wherever you have opportunity. And for some of you here, that may, may therefore mean starting to read your Bible and getting to know God's Word, getting to know it for the sake of your unbelieving friends and your unbelieving family members, so that you might, with all eagerness, be able to prayerfully and persuasively explain who Jesus is and what He has done, just as Paul does here. Now, I recognise that it might be more embarrassing to ask your friend to read Mark's Gospel with you instead of just having them round for dinner. And I understand that it might seem more loving to, to rake the leaves of your mother's yard than to say to her, Mom, I was just wondering if we could read the Bible together during October. But friends, as we see lost people in this story, from practicing Jews to prosperous pagans, marvelously saved from the right judgment of God as they come to understand the word, is there anything more important for you to eagerly Exert yourself in for others than knowing and explaining God's word. Friends, as we read the book of Acts together, I do really pray that there might be a greater eagerness and a greater urgency about this task amongst us all, myself very much included. I pray, too, that there might be a continued unity around a biblical ethos of evangelism where God's word is eagerly explained to the last. However, when we do that, or we eagerly open God's word and we explain it, we must remember that the, that the results are not always what we would desire them to be. For look with me to verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but... But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In the early 17th century, to all intents and purposes, the world was being turned upside down. For in the early 1600s in Europe, a fierce intellectual battle ensued over whether the world literally turned. Uh, for centuries, people believed that the world did not turn, and the sun moved around the earth. But in 1609, thanks to the work of Nicolaus Copernicus, the Italian astronomer Galileo famously declared that the world turned around the sun. Now, most secular retellings of this scholarly boxing match portrayed as the, the clever scientist Galileo in one corner and the primitive church in the other corner. And it's certainly true that in 1615, one uh, Roman Catholic inquisition of Galileo stated that his ideas were unbiblical. But the history is far more nuanced than that. For Galileo argued that he was a man of faith consistently. And rightly argued that the Bible, quote, teaches us how one goes to heaven, not how heaven goes. Indeed, many Christians at the time, particularly uh, the Dutch reformers, commended Galileo for his great work. And many of Galileo's battles were not with the church, but with his fellow intellectuals at the University of Pisa. But the fact still remained. When Galileo declared that the earth was not at the center of the solar system, many did not like it. Galileo reasoned, and he explained, and he proved. And many in the church and many in the academic world believed. But after his careful explanation, many did not believe. Because for many proud Italian scholars, this was a departure from their schooling in Aristotle. To say that the earth moved around the sun was to depart from all the ways that they had been taught. It was to rip up all the traditional textbooks and to admit that they had interpreted the universe and interpreted the scriptures wrongly. These well respected academics, they knew the stakes. They knew that to accept Galileo's message was to accept that they were no longer the center of the universe, both literally and metaphorically. And so what did these teachers do to Galileo? Well, they envied him. And this envy led them to lecture against him. And out of jealousy, some of these scholars stirred up lots of the political authorities in Rome, exaggerating all his teaching to discredit his message until his books were banned by Roman authorities and until Galileo remained at the house arrest for the rest of his life. In verses 5 to 9 of this account, something not too dissimilar occurs. After Paul's lecture, some were persuaded, verse 4, some were willing to listen to change their minds, some were willing to humbly accept that they had read their Old Testaments wrongly. Some were willing to accept with humility that they were not the center of the universe and that Jesus was that he was the Christ, Lord over all. But some people, perhaps just like some people here this morning, did not want to admit that they were wrong. And so they turned against their preacher. They raised the alarm with the public authorities. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And why Why such opposition? Well, verse 5 tells us, doesn't it? For just like with Galileo, these scholars were jealous. And hence second point this morning, the ethos of envy. With eagerness, God's word is exaggerated. The ethos of envy, with eagerness, God's word is exaggerated. Nothing wounds the pride of men and women more than someone explaining that they are wrong and then having a load of people agree with that view. And nothing stirs up envy in men and women more than seeing those who listen to them once walk away to listen to somebody else. And so fueled by this pride and this envy towards this new synagogue teacher, they seek to defame Paul. At first, it's done with a the wildness. They round up the kind of the bad lads of the city, the, the English soccer hooligans and the American mobsters, and they, and they get these men to batter down Paul's guest house, putting the boot into his friend Jason. But once, verse 5, the city is in total uproar, like all academics, when losing their influence, they fire not weapons, but they fire their words. And they say, verse 7, these men are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Propelled on by their envy, they eagerly employ the words of Paul and Silas and exaggerate them for evil ends. And being clever, university dons. They know how to discredit someone's work. They don't do that with, with, with downright lies. No, they, they exaggerate the missionary's words. Their message has turned the world upside down, they say, which is in some sense is correct. Thousands all across the world were, were humbly coming to see that Jesus was the center of the universe. Their message is about another king, King Jesus, they say. And again, misleading but true. Jesus Christ is that center of the universe. He reigns over all things and will one day return to judge all. But then comes the clever twist, the non sequitur. So they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, they conclude, which is false. For Paul was no anarchist, no no militant jihadist. Paul never incited public disturbances in the empire, for Paul knew the words of Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Christians were to pay their taxes and obey civil authorities. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul actually tells Christians that they are to pray for kings and for those in positions of authority so that they may live a peaceful and quiet life. Our very own statement of faith. Here at Edgefield Church says, we believe that civil government exists by divine appointment for the benefit and good order of human society. How very sad that many consider that some so-called Christians today have no respect for civil authority at all. But returning to our main point of application, those who envy the truth of God's word become those who are eager to exaggerate God's word. And friends, I want us to see that. I want us to see it so that we might not be surprised by it, nor overly discouraged by it in our evangelism when we do it. For you see, many, most people, particularly in my experience, very smart people, will not just let God's word be proclaimed only to just shrug and walk away. Indeed, most people, particularly if they see their friends and their family and those who they once had influence over, persuaded by it, they will often attack God's word. Now, this might be done in the kind of aggressive mob form of social media, the kind of modern-day equivalent of smashing down Jason's house. But also, those who are envious of the gospel will exaggerate cleverly God's truth in very polite ways. Friends, when you open up God's word with people, don't be surprised if they look to twist God's words, saying, I I can't believe that you think that, that everyone is as evil as they could possibly be. I I can't believe that you would throw out all of science because you believe in a creator. I can't believe that you now hate homosexuals and Muslims. I can't believe that you believe a fairy tale that that one day we're just going to float around on clouds. Friends, none of those things are true about Christianity. But God's word will often be exaggerated, twisted to make us sound mad or bad. And that is what it was like for the evangelist Paul in Thessalonica. And friends, that will be what it is like for us if we love the people of Nashville enough to tell them. Friends, it is a kindness of the Lord here to warn us about the trials that may come when we tell other people about Jesus. That the straight and the unbending truth of the gospel does not mean that people will not try to twist it to say something else. We have to expect that God's word will be envied. We have to expect that God's word will be exaggerated. Indeed, we must also expect that that sometimes such enmity will not just fade away when we move on to tell other people. For did you notice that when Paul flees Thessalonica under the cloak of darkness and and travels southwest inland and to Berea, that these men are still on his tail? still running on the fumes of of pure envy. Verse 13, a great number of the Jewish Thessalonians drive all the way to Berea just to try to stop God's word again. Indeed, their resolve to to shut this this good news up is is really quite staggering. For Berea is 45 miles from Thessalonica. Today, we might see a co-worker walking across the office to stop someone saying something about their college football team today we might see a neighbor walking across the street to to stop someone saying something about their children but but these religious scholars walk 45 miles just to stop someone saying something about jesus 45 miles that's from here to the kentucky border Indeed, the lengths that these enemies of the gospel go might cause us to think that that Paul's second mission uh, in a synagogue here is headed for total disaster compared to the first. But it is not. In fact, Paul's outreach in Berea is even more fruitful. And why is that? Is it because Paul finally sees the value of, of putting on the Easter bunny costume now and giving out chocolate pretzels? No, his ethos, his customary practice is exactly the same again in verse 10. Paul arrived and walked straight into the synagogue and started explaining the scriptures. And so is this success because God is at work? Well, yes, absolutely. Nothing can happen without the Holy Spirit working through God's word explained. And yet here... The historian Luke draws our attention not to the evangelist this time, eagerly explaining God's word, nor to the envious, eagerly exaggerating God's word. Instead, in verses 10 to 15, Luke holds up those who eagerly engage with God's word. Final point this morning the ethos of engagement. With eagerness, God's word is examined the ethos of engagement with eagerness God's word is examined there's a great contrast here between that the Jews of Thessalonica and the Jews of Berea for we are told in verse 11 that the Bereans were more noble literally that the Bereans were from better stock their attitude that their character that their genetics their, their ethos was like great kings and queens of old. For verse 11, and please look carefully at that verse, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. How do these people engage with God's word? Neither with indifference nor impulsiveness, but with eagerness and with examination like a wholehearted stockbroker receiving the the financial times in the morning, like a helicopter parent uh, receiving the student report card of their child, like a hardened sports junkie receiving the stats uh, as they put together their fantasy football team for the new season. And with an eagerness, they receive it as the divine communication that it is. They remove that that, that envelope with, with, with care, with joy, that they open the letter and they examine it and and they read it and they reread it and they, they revise it. And having studied it, they take God's word to heart. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. Can you see? They do not study it like some kind of fleeting intellectual exercise that ultimately has no real bearing upon their lives. No, they study it and they jettison old beliefs, and they give their everything to it. That they previously understood that one was saved by by religious works and being born into a good Jewish family. Now they come to understand that one is saved by Jesus' work and being born into him by faith and by faith alone. And so friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian What about you? This morning you've received God's word through this passage, through the songs, through the prayers and the readings. You hold God's very word in your hand right now. What will you do with it? What are you doing with it? Will you see what God says about Jesus? Will you be willing to humbly change your mind like those in the days of Galileo? Will you come to believe that the world does not actually revolve around you and that Jesus has set himself as the Christ, the king, the center of the whole universe that he created? Or at the very least, if this is, if this is brand new to you, will you take home that, that Bible in your pew? I promise you, it's not stealing. And will you choose to study it like a Berean, to carefully examine whether it is true or whether it is not true. My unbelieving friend, that the majority of people in this room consider that that is the most important thing that you could ever do in your life. Why not just give yourself a few hours to read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, with an open mind and to consider whether it is true. Maybe you have lots of questions about Christianity. Those are important to think through. Maybe you see the cost of believing the gospel, which you know will turn your world upside down. Friends, following Jesus is not easy. Maybe there are people that you know who have said negative things about the Bible, like the Thessalonian Jews no doubt said to the Berean Jews. But friends, let me encourage you to be a Berean, to do your own study with an open mind, praying that God would reveal himself to you through his word. And as we close, let me also briefly apply the example of the Brains to those of us who are Christians. For the noble opening of Scripture is not just a one-time event. No, that the one who loves does not tire of hearing their lover's voice the one who loves God, delights to hear him speak. And so how do the brains model good Bible reading here? Well, my time is nearly gone, but here are four very, very quick, rapid-fire applications as we close. One, read God's word diffidently. That the brains were very diffident, were they not? That the brains were not wild, that the brains were not proud, but very self-effacing, very unassuming here, When it came to the re examination of God's word, the brains didn't hear something new or something they didn't like, only to head immediately for their Twitter accounts. No, no, they listened. They listened with a deep humility. And they sat and they they read and they pondered and they finally said, maybe I'm wrong about this passage. Maybe I'm wrong about this doctrine. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that thing isn't actually a sin. Maybe that thing is a sin. Friends, I'm constantly seeing things in the word that are new, things that cause me to change my beliefs and my practices, things that cause me to say I was wrong. When was the last time that you changed your mind about an issue after carefully reading God's word? Could it be that pride has actually stunted your growth as a Christian? Secondly, read God's word daily. Do you notice how often that the brains were in the word, particularly at this time, verse 11 again, they examine the scriptures daily. My Christian friends, what about you? Do you actually read the Bible at all these days? Do you have a daily schedule such that God's voice is actually allowed in it at some point? Does God get the lean part of your calendar or just the scraps at the end of the day? Now, don't get me wrong here. There's no verse in Scripture that says thou shalt read the Bible every single day. And I certainly don't want to be legalistic about it. But wouldn't it be very odd to say that you really loved someone but went days without hearing their voice when you had opportunity to hear them whenever you like? Perhaps a very practical application for you when you get home is to get on your Google Calendar and think about entering an event with someone who you will spend eternity with. Because friends, however old you are, however old you are, it is not too late to be a Berean. Thirdly, read God's word discerningly. Now when Paul preached to these Bereans, how did they receive his sermons? One may have thought that they just kind of lapped up Paul's teaching like compliant little pups such that Paul could boast about his new, well-trained disciples. But no, can you see that, that Luke commends these Bereans precisely because they did not just blindly accept Paul's message because he had a load of letters after his name. After he preached God's word, they examined God's word, as it says here, to see if these things were so. Friends, let me be very clear When I preach, I'm not just looking for those who who quickly nod along. I'm looking for those who slowly nod along. Those who look up for a moment to listen, and then those who get their noses back into the Bible to see if what I'm saying is true. Friends, one of my favorite sounds in, in all the world is the pages of Scripture rustling as one preaches. Indeed, I pray. I pray that we will never become a church where where everyone just uh, just agrees with everything said, doesn't think about it, and just goes home. I want us to be a church where the sermon is thought about and discussed afterwards with Bibles open. For friends, how will you spot that the heretical preacher or the swindling church leader or, or the counselor with unbiblical advice if you don't read God's word with great discernment? We must all learn to listen to God's word being taught with a vigilance and with a care, testing each and every sermon against God's word. And fourthly, and very finally, read God's word delightedly. Read diffidently, read daily, read discerningly, and above all, read God's word delightedly. For you know... For all the humility and carefulness that these studious Bereans show, that there is an inexpressible delight too, isn't there? Well, verse 11 again, they received the word with with all eagerness. Friends, when we receive God's word as the gift that it is, that, that official reminder that all our debts have been paid, that love letter from the one who adores us, that postcard from heaven of hope to come, Friends, when we receive God's word for what it is, in light of our desperate need for guidance and help, in light of the fleetingness of our lives, in light of the eternity that is coming to us, we shall read it with joy. Reading it shall not be a duty, but a delight. We shall crave the reading of it above all else. We shall seek it out until we reach the shores of heaven. Just over 250 years ago, the evangelist, John Wesley, uh, who preached in North Carolina and very close, actually, to where that pastor that I mentioned at the very start of my sermon preaches. And in the preface uh, to his standard sermons, John Wesley wrote the following about his delight in God's word in light of his evangelistic task and in light of his coming eternity. And with this, we shall close. Wesley wrote I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air I am a spirit come from God and returning to God just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence I am seen no more I drop into an unchangeable eternity I want to know one thing the way to heaven how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven and he hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that we would be such people. Father, we pray that we would be people of one book. Father, would you help us to see the great and the preciousness of your word, that which reveals you, your Son, your Spirit. Father, we worship you, the precious Trinity, not the Bible, but we do thank you and we do praise you for the means that you have given us to hear your very voice. And so, Father, would you help us all to read? Father, would you give young children here the ability to read so that they might read your word soon? Father, give those who are interested in your gospel here the necessary insight to understand your word well. And for those of us who are seasoned believers, would you give us here the desire to know you more and more? Father, would you forgive us for a pride, a pride which often halts our study? Father, would you forgive us for a desire to evangelize the world with worldliness and not the word? And Father, would you restore to us again an eagerness to hear your word explained? and an eagerness to examine your word. Father, would that be the ethos of our church? And we pray this for the sake of the lost, for the sake of ourselves, and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.